masters of your wisdom have established three hierarchies of angels, have arrayed them in marvelous order above the fiery heavens, and have marshaled the regions of the universe with such artful skill. You are proclaimed the true thought of light and wisdom, and the primal origin raised high beyond all things. Pour forth a ray of your brightness into the darkened places of my mind. Disperse from my soul the twofold darkness into which I was born, sin and ignorance. You make eloquent the tongues of infants. Refine my speech and pour forth upon my lips the goodness of your blessing. Grant to me keenness of mind, capacity to remember, skill in learning, subtlety to interpret, and eloquence in speech. May you guide the beginning of my work, direct its progress, and bring it to completion. You who are true God and true man, who live Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, scholar, writer, mom, and slightly nutty enthusiast of medieval poetry. It's the last installment of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And while I was prepping for today's podcast, I was reading the poem aloud to myself. And by the way, that's a hot tip. If you're ever reading something uh, that you're finding difficult, um, especially something with a meter, like poetry or like um, some of Shakespeare's plays, reading it out loud can help you understand it um, so much more easily. So next time, give that a try. But anyways, I was reading the poem aloud and I got all teary-eyed because I just love this poetry. The content is so wonderful and the Middle English itself is wildly beautiful, even unearthly. I hope that many of you are discovering that same love, truth, and wonder hidden in this 650-year-old gem. So let's get to it. Gawain wakes up on the morning of his destiny. He puts on his most dazzling outfit and makes sure to tightly wrap the green girdle around his waist. The poet comments that it looks good on him, but obviously he's not wearing it for beauty. He saddles Gringolet his horse, and a guide leads them both into the wilderness. From Simon Armitage's translation. They scrambled up bankings where branches were bare, clambered up cliff faces where the cold clings. The clouds which had climbed now cooled and dropped, so the moors and the mountains were muzzy with mist, and every hill wore a hat of mizzle on its head. I love that Armitage gleans so much from the Middle English here. One of the most charming lines of the original mentions these mist hats on the mountains. Uch hille hade hatte, a mist hackle huge. Next time you see a mountaintop covered in cloud, which for me is a regular occurrence because I live in Denver, you can gently whisper to yourself, hello, mist hackle. So Gawain's nameless guide gets him close to the chapel, then uneasily begins to take his leave. He attempts to convince Gawain to join him in fleeing. You don't know this green knight, says the man. He loves to murder people. It is his favorite pastime. The servant pleads to Gawain, who he has grown to love and respect, 
for God's sake, travel an alternative track. Ride another road and be rescued by Christ. I'll head off home, and with hand on heart, I shall swear by God and all His good saints, and on all earthly holiness and other such oaths, that your secret is safe, and not a soul will know that you fled in fear from the fellow I described. Gawain refuses with some significant irritation and says he will never be taken for a coward. He adds, he may be stout and stern and standing armed with stave, but those who strive to serve our Lord, our Lord will save. This little interlude is rather interesting to me. It's a minor moment in this very exciting fit for, but both of these men are doing something which we often do today talking about God's work in the world confidently and very directly as if the Lord didn't use mediums or intermediaries or go-betweens or subtleties in his work. For the servant, it seems that Christ doesn't have enough power to rescue Gawain if Gawain does something so colossally stupid as following through with his promise to visit this bloodthirsty green fiend. Meanwhile, Gawain seems to have conveniently forgotten about his own compromises he has made. secretly keeping the green girdle, undermining the strong statements he makes on finding his fortune, quote, the grace of God alone. He sounds kind of like folks today who triumphantly declare their faith in their God-given immune systems, conveniently forgetting that God has saved lives through the hands and feet of people, including doctors and scientists, and perhaps even sexy court ladies, countless times. We all can easily vacillate between perhaps performative assertions of utter trust and implicit doubt that God himself can deal with the terrible implications of our choices. And we're all remarkably blind in our capacities for self-deception. I see myself there in Gawain's erratic ability to go from sneakily pocketing an enchanted item for self-preservation and loudly declaring infallible trust in God in the meantime. In this moment, the blame doesn't exactly rest in his taking the girdle, but in that intellectual and spiritual dishonesty. Equally, though, this doesn't invalidate Gawain's courage. He has an out, a real out, and he refuses to take it. We, the readers, know he's been afraid dreaming dreadful dreams, facing foes seen and unseen to get to what will likely be his death. And yet he goes onward. And boy, is that courage about to be tested further. For Gawain reaches the Green Chapel. This hill, surrounded by frantically rushing water, is creepy. Listen to Armitage. It had a hole at one end, either side, and its walls, matted with weeds and moss, enclosed a cavity like a kind of old cave or crevice in the crag. It was all too unclear to declare. Green church, chunters the night, more like the devil's lair, where at the nub of night he dabbles in dark prayers. Then, another moment of wild horror and cleverness. A sound rings out over the seemingly empty haunted scene. Not a scream, but something close. It's the shrill, inhuman sound of an axe being wetted. Here I read in the Middle English because yet again our poet imitates the sound of steel on a wedding stone. 
being honed to a fine edge, perfect for shearing necks. What? It clattered in the cliff as it clave a shoulder, as one upon a grindle stone had groomed in a seeth. What? It warred and wet as water at a mulner. What? It rushed and wronger, wrath to hear. Can you hear the noise that clatters and cleaves the cliff? The repetition of what, what, is particularly ingenious. So that word was traditionally used in alliterative poetry for a long time, hundreds of years, as a call to listen closely. It's actually the first word of the very famous Old English poem Beowulf. But here, it also sounds kind of like the sharpening itself. It's basically a pun via sound. And the alliterative sounds that the poet uses also echo the sharpening, the W's and the R's closely resembling that sort of screaming, shearing, rasping noise. It sends chills down my spine. Gawain has one less chance to lose his nerve, but instead he calls out and reveals his presence. Come out, it's now or never. And something growls back. Abide. Out of the stones comes the green knight, now with a giant new axe in his hand, and the massive green man uses it to vault over the rushing waters and come to Gawain. He greets Gawain and notes, you fulfilled your promise. Gawain tries to look unafraid. He bares his neck and he bows before the knight. In a theatrical flourish, the green knight draws the axe high, ready to deal a deathly blow. As he brings it down, Gawain suddenly flinches and shrinks, and the axe wielder diverts his swing. You're not Gawain, he says. Such a man would never shrink at foretaste of harm. Never could I hear of such cowardice from that night. Did I budge or even blink when you aimed the axe? We've heard this taunt before. You can't be Gawain. Its presence, as always, is telling. Gawain's life is at stake, but more importantly to him, his reputation is on trial. Gawain protests he won't do it again, but brusquely tells the Green Knight, get on with it. The Green Knight taunts him by repeating the swing, but moving it away at the last second. But this time, Gawain is rooted like a tree. With inner fear and outward anger, Gawain demands that the Green Knight just hit him already. With a great final stroke, the Green Knight brings the axe mightily down upon Gawain's neck. Hoisted and aimed, the axe hurtled downwards, the blade bearing down on the knight's bare neck, a ferocious blow, but far from being fatal, it skewed to one side, just skimming the skin and finally nicking the fat of the flesh, so that bright red blood shot from body to earth. Seeing it shining on the snowy ground, Gawain leapt forward a spear's length at least, grabbed hold of his helmet and rammed it on his head, brought his shield to his side with a shimmy of his shoulder, then brandished his sword before blurting out brave words, because never since birth as his mother's babe was he half as happy as here and now. Enough swiping, sir. You've swung your swing. Gawain has lived. He's ready to fight if the Green Knight follows through on his murderous reputation, but instead the Green Knight looks at Gawain standing aggressively and bravely, and in his heart, he admires him. The Green Knight explains his own game that he had divided his strokes into three. 
Had I mustered all my muscles into one mighty blow, I would have hit you more harshly and done you great harm, he explains. But instead, he fainted with the first blow, for Gowing's truthful behavior had won his trust. He missed Gowing again with his second, and this for the morning when you kissed my pretty wife, then kindly kissed me. Wait, the Green Knight is Lord Bertilac? Yet this hardly has a chance to hit us, because he keeps going with this explanation. The last time he hit Gowing for real and shed his blood because of that very green girdle, which belongs to the Green Knight himself. I sent the lady to test you, he acknowledges. As a pearl is more prized than a pea which is white, in good faith so is Gawain among gallant knights. But a little thing more, it was loyalty you lacked. Not because you're wicked or a womanizer or worse, but you loved your own life, so I blame you less. This was all a trick engineered by the great enchantress Morgan Le Fay to tempt and weaken the great King Arthur. Gawain stands speechless, absorbing the shock. The blood rushes to his face, and he's cringing in shame. This moment stretches out in time. The cringing, handsome young knight, with his sword beginning to sink downwards, the smiling, giant green man looking at him with triumph, and also, strangely, some love and understanding. Gawain breaks the silence. Like a child throwing a toy that hurt him, he fumblingly unties the girdle and he flings it at the green knight in an agony of anger and shame. He cries out, My downfall and undoing, let the devil take it. Dread of the death blow and cowardly doubts meant I gave into greed, and in doing so forgot the freedom and fidelity every knight knows to follow. And now I'm found to be flawed and false. Through treachery and untruth, I have totally failed. First, Gawain's words are disorienting. Why is he confessing all these crazy sins when it seems that his only mistake was a lie of omission in a game? This seems like an overreaction. But do you remember Gawain's personal emblem on his shield, the Endless Knot, the pentangle of virtues that characterized his face, his reputation to the world? Gawain's endless knot has utterly collapsed. The vices he cites are the opposites of those virtues. His understanding of himself and the way he lives in the world is crumbling in one moment. The Middle English here is especially interesting. Gawain is taught by cowardice to forsake his kinda. Kinda, spelled K-Y-N-D-E, is a central word here. We still use some word ancestors of it today. Our modern kind, as in kindness, appropriate and attentive behavior to one another. And our modern kind, as in mankind, or type, or category, as in I like that kind of candy. Medieval people used it in those ways as well, but it was a far more powerful word. It's a multivalent word that means identity, a deep nature inherent to a person. With the discovery of his girdle theft, Gawain feels as if he has forsaken his deepest nature as a knight and as a man. In contrast, the Green Knight argues this only means that Gawain loved his life, an understandable weakness when faced with death. In this sense, It's in accord with an even deeper kinda for him to betray these values. 
these ideals of knighthood and manhood. But Gawain is not having it. He's so frustrated and ashamed of his failure. So he asks the Green Knight to forgive him, and the Green Knight absolves him in a sort of secular parody of confession, penance, and absolution. The knight even invites Gawain back to the castle to meet his wife now as friend and not foe. Gawain understandably refuses. I would too. And then he enters on this total tirade against women worthy of the most virulent friar of the Middle Ages. I hate to give it airtime. So to sum up, ever since Eve, women have been the source of man's downfall. Do we take this vitriol against women seriously? Is Gawain echoing what the poet truly believes to be true about women? We could. It's not out of the question. Such a speech like this is part of a long tradition of medieval writing and thinking, especially from friars, monks, and other religious men uh, committed to chastity. Some readers do. I don't take this vitriol seriously. I mean, I think Gawain means it seriously, but I think the poet is having a last bit of fun at people when their values collapse into a heap in a moment of failure. Surely it can't be my own fault. Gawain is desperately casting about for something to blame when the world isn't as it should be according to him. As it so often does, the hammer of blame falls upon women We still see that today. We also see it frequently cast at other oppressed folks like persons of color on a very regular basis. All of this is in line with Gawain's general overreaction, shame, and anger with himself. It's also a piece with the poet's keen awareness of the fragility of some types of masculinity, especially chivalric masculinity. Gawain's overweening interest in his reputation, especially with women, Arthur's advice towards greater violence in a game, and the Green Knight's own interest in cutting them down to size. The Green Knight tells him to keep the girdle, and Gawain swears he will wear it always as a sign of his sin and failure and frailty of flesh. It will act as a check to his prowess, his pride in his skills and his abilities, and as a reminder of his humanity. And as Gawain rides, Green Girdle tied aslant his chest back to Camelot. So he winds through the wilds of the world once more. Gawain on Gringolet by the grace of God, under a roof sometimes and sometimes roughing it, in valleys and vales, had adventures and victories, but time is too tight to tell how they went. I think the ending of this poem is perhaps the most curious and interesting part of the whole thing. And I still change my mind in how I interpret it, despite having read it so many times. So you're about to hear my current interpretation of it, but that might change next week. Who knows? When Gawain arrives back at Arthur's court, everyone rejoices to see him alive. He shows them his scar from the axe and the girdle, and tells them the story of his failures. I was tainted by untruth, he announces, and shows his new knot, the knotted lace he wears about his human body. The court comforts him, then laughs, and they all start wearing green girdles themselves. And each knight who wore the girdle 
girdle was honored ever after. And that very girdle becomes a symbol for honor and for the great court of King Arthur. So basically, it's turned upside down. Who is right about the girdle? Gawain in his shame as a symbol for sin? The court as a symbol for a knight who was brave and managed to live? Either way, isn't it amazing that the knot of perfection, the endless knot, the pentangle on Gawain's shield is replaced with a new knot? So I have three main interpretations that I see as possible, and I will tell you all three, and you can decide for yourself how you interpret this. The first is that Gawain is right. He's now a truth-speaking man within a court of frivolity that cares little for mankind's failures. This court acts like a certain American ex-president. Something that should be shameful becomes part of the pageantry and excitement of a political party, a shallow and unethical way of being in the world. If we celebrate failures and dishonestly turn them into triumphs, we don't have to deal with their consequences. The second is that Gawain is being overscrupulous about his sins. He's self-flagellating, punishing himself too severely for something he should feel a proper amount of guilt about, and then move on. The court sees the symbol, sees the girdle as a symbol of common humanity, of honor, even in weakness. Gawain needs to lighten up and recognize that he fails like everyone else. Either of these last two are extremely viable interpretations, but the third is my favorite. I think both Gawain and the court are a little bit right. We all wear the girdle of our mortality in the form of our crumbling and glorious bodies. We need both Gawain and the court, both the girdle as reminder of weakness and frailty and the girdle as reminder of bravery and honor and human limitation pushed to its limit. We mourn our sins and we rejoice that we live in a world where we see the beauty of courage and great action. I wrote this on Halloween and it occurred to me that this is what Halloween and its following holidays of All Saints Day and All Souls Day celebrated properly what they're about. Facing and celebrating humanity's littleness in the face of so much unknown. Our merry rejoicing against the darkness combined with a little healthy fear and respect for the vastness and the vast unknowability of our world. Our simultaneous reclamation of the knowledge that we're made to live well in the image of God and knowing we aren't the people of the righteously perfect eternal knot that we would like to believe so. We make decisions not knowing their outcome, but we try to practice the virtues and we acknowledge those who have before us. We, like Gawain, are learning. We're learning where we have imbibed toxic cultural untruth where we're haunted by grand ideas of ourselves that hold us to suffocating unreality. What is our kinda? We're not the people of the pentangle, the glorious, perfect, intertwined crown of virtues yet. But the people of the green girdle, bound to fail in our big and often dark world, yet learning who we are and how to live. 
Let's end this series in the world in the words of the poet of 650 years ago. I'll first read Armitage's translation and end with the Middle English. Once the siege and assault at Troy had ceased, our coffers have been crammed with stories such as these. Now let our Lord, thorn-crowned, bring us to perfect peace. Amen. After the siege and the assault, what ceased at Troy, Iwis, Mani on terras here before, have fallen such ere this. Knew that bear the croon of thorne, he bring us to his bliss. Amen. If you enjoyed this series, I'd love to hear from you. Please share, subscribe, leave a review, or follow me on Instagram or Twitter. Thank you so much for listening. I had a blast thinking through Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and I hope you did too. So here's a fun Old Books with Grace bonus. I've posted a bookish holiday gift guide on oldbooksworthgrace.com, so be sure to check that out if you haven't already. It gives ideas for the big and little readers in your life who you love, um, and I think uh, there's some really fun stuff on there. Next week, there'll be a new episode with a wonderful guest, Shannon K. Evans, author of the recent book, Rewilding Motherhood. We'll talk about the medieval idea of Jesus as a mother and how this ancient image can speak to us in our lives today. Do join us. Until next time, thanks for listening. The prayer you heard at the beginning of this episode is from the Aquinas Prayer Book by St. Thomas Aquinas, translated and edited by Robert Anderson and Johann Moser published by the Sophia Institute Press.